0: Amen. Can we give a shout of praise and thank God for this good time to praise him? Amen. 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 This is good. It's just good to sing and magnify the Lord. I'd like to invite you, as you remain standing a moment more, open these Bibles that are in the pews so we'll be reading together briefly in unison on page 696. And that takes us to Psalm 107. And we'll share this while the children are still with us here. And uh, two sections of Psalm 107 that uh, bring right down into the into the reality, the nitty gritty of real life, what we know God can do for anyone who will lift their voice. That's why the voice and the heart together are such uh, vital companions, even in the way. We read in Scripture about what it means to put our trust in Christ. He invites our voice to be part of it. And this is one of those passages that sort of foreshadows the New Testament picture of bringing out of our own lips the confession, Jesus is Lord. So Psalm 107, we're going to read verses 1 through 9 and then drop down to 17 through 22. These sections, we read aloud together together. Thank God it's your voice for his glory. Amen? Let's read it together. Psalm 107, verses 1 through 9. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from the hand of the enemy and gathered out of the lands, from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south. They wandered in the wilderness in a desolate way. They found no city to dwell in. Hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted in them. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble. And he delivered them out of their distresses. And he led them forth by the right way, that they might go to a city for a dwelling place. Oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works in the children of men. For he satisfies the longing soul and fills the hungry soul with goodness. And now we pick up the reading at verse 17 through 22. Fools, because of their transgression and because of their iniquities, were afflicted. Their soul abhorred all manner of food, and they drew near to the gates of death. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble. And he saved them out of their distresses. He sent his word and healed them and delivered them from their destructions. Oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works in the children of men. Let them sacrifice the sacrifices of thanksgiving and declare his works with rejoicing. Yes, yes. This invites all of us to give God that jubilant thanks that his redeeming grace is so worthy of. Let's do it together, just from your heart, a spontaneous thanks to the Lord. Father, thank you. Just give him thanks. And your own words, in your own way for a moment, just thank him. Thank him anew for that wondrous beautiful gift, Lord. We love you. We worship you. We worship you. Lord, we praise you. Lord, we praise you. Lord, we praise you. you. We praise you very easy melody to learn share with us lord we praise you lord we praise you I'm so grateful for everybody teaching in our uh, Pathfinders and Explorers classes. These have been such a good opportunity, digging into God's Word um, with uh, teachers all primed to bless these kids. Uh, Jonathan and Jessica have the Explorers today, and I so appreciate them doing that together as a, as a, t- as a team. And just before you're seated, let's, uh, we want to welcome each of you that are guests, especially today. Thank you for being a part of this worship time. And we want to just say hello again briefly, Oh, we have in the lobby. But just take one minute, to greet one another, say hello. And uh, we so welcome you. If you're a guest today, we'd love to have a chance to meet you in fellowship. God bless you. Thank you so much, everybody. All right. Amen. And it's always good to have friends back that maybe visit uh, before, and uh, we just really are grateful for the fellowship of the body of Christ. Today, I want to invite you to open your Bible to the 19th chapter of the book of Exodus, the Old Testament, the second book of the Bible, the 19th chapter. To begin to think together about a truth that carries us will carry us for four Sundays into the Palm Sunday celebration time. As we on uh, on April the tenth will on Palm Sunday will be um, together reminded of the triumphal entry of our Lord and Savior Jesus in that. Um, astounding and humbling contrast that we see between the jubilation over Christ coming into the city of Jerusalem and yet the impending doom of that knowledge that his purpose in coming is to be the sacrificed lamb. Now, there are many aspects, of course, to this great truth of the grace of God. And we're going to look at it, though, in light, first of all, of the reason that grace was necessary And my prayer would be that we might think of God's grace in in a way that adds more fullness, color, texture, richness to the understanding of grace. And the reason for that is we all know this. It's really easy. It's so easy to become a bit um, too accustomed to grace. There's a line in the classic uh, musical My Fair Lady that says, I've grown accustomed to your face. Unfortunately, many followers of Jesus in our culture could say that, and it is unfortunate, about God's grace, I've become accustomed to your grace. Now, we know one of the best beloved hymns and most famous hymns of all time, and a hymn that uh, if I am ever at a place where I know that the audience may not have a Christian background even then, you can start into "Amazing Grace." Now, it's probably not hardly an American that doesn't couldn't sing at least some some of those lyrics. Yeah, and so that that wonderful hymn is dear to all of us when we hear the bagpipes playing it at some great uh, some great parade or some uh, memorial service. It's just moving. It always sends chills down my spine. And when the bagpipes begin with "Amazing Grace," it never fails to move me. But the fact is, it's become so well known that for a lot of people, sadly, I have to say, and with great apologies to John Newton, (laughs) that, uh, that the amazing part of it has vanished for a lot of people. And it's just, may I put it this way, it's just grace, well, of course grace, I'm such a wonderful person. Why wouldn't God have grace toward me? (laughs) Or it's uh, maybe not quite that pronounced, but it could just be that, uh, well, of course it's God's grace, even if we know of our own sinfulness and are being acknowledging of that. It could just be, well, of course it's God's grace because that's what God does. God's the grace God. And in our contemporary Christian culture, including the church, unfortunately, sometimes the aura of God's the God of grace and his grace is everywhere. And you don't deserve it. It's unmerited favor, and it's just grace, 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 grace. And it starts to sound like it's just like a. It's what it's what uh, Bob Mumford years ago used to call greasy grace, or sloppy agape. It's there's a lack there's a lack of this grip of grace, and and the only there's no sermon, there's no pastor, there's no single poem or song or or anything that could could fully correct that in the human mind but but one of the things we're about here at Liberty Church is a wonderful adventure of of renewing the mind of the transforming of the mind of of understanding what does it really mean to think biblically now in light of that I'd like to ask you to think first of all about what the new testament says about grace and then have your bible open to exodus 19 and we're going to be looking at um the most significant issue in recapturing the amazing in grace. And that most significant issue would be almighty God who initiates covenant with human beings. The Hebrew word for covenant literally means, the Hebrew word literally means cutting a vein. So a summary of the covenant Keeping nature of God could be that he cuts covenant. He cuts covenant in order to achieve what only can be achieved by his power. And it gets translated into the fullness here of this theme. I'd like you to read directly from Titus 2:11. Now, this is this is a theme that we'll carry over through this series in looking at what God's covenant keeping nature means to the heart of the child of God. And I'd like to ask you just to read these words aloud with me from Titus 2.11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Let's say it again. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Among all the really excellent modern translations that are a great treasure to us in in our study one that has become a favorite to me is not a most recent one. It's the New English Bible. Actually, it was a translation completed in the 1970s. But this New English Bible renders this phrase in Titus 2.11 this way For the grace of God has dawned upon the world with healing for all mankind. The grace of God has dawned upon the world with healing for all mankind. And so when we ask the question, well, how can we then become um, heirs of that grace? How can we fully honor and recognize what does it mean for God to bring it to us? What I'd like for us to share in for these four Sundays until Palm Sunday is a covenant journey. And we begin in that 19th uh, chapter of Exodus because here is where we see not the first mention of covenant of course but the application of the covenant that god cut with abraham and isaac and jacob to a people and there's a great accent in in exodus 19 on god's purpose for a people corporately to receive together there's a togetherness aspect of this which then is applied individually to the heart of course The sprinkling of the blood of the sacrificed lamb on every doorpost in Israel in the original Seder um, is a symbol of the individual application of the blood of Christ to our hearts. But together, God's goal was a people. And we see this so vividly in Exodus 19. And we also see here, as we read this section the first time, that in order to bring about this great covenant purpose for a people, God had a strategic way of bringing them up to a point where they would vividly perceive the needs of their heart. So we're going to see this, why God chose to deal with his covenant people in the wilderness. On the third new moon, Exodus 19.1 reads, After the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt on that day, they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. Hebrew writers have some very nuanced and deft touches in the manner in which the Hebrew language is used. For the sake of an emphasis that settles down upon the soul like dew upon the grass in the mornings. And one of those is parallelism, and the other is repetition, almost like the repetition of a theme that becomes stronger and stronger in a symphony where the uh, crescendo begins to rise as the theme begins to ascend. And that's the sense of this rep- repetition of wilderness, wilderness, wilderness. They came. Out from Rephidim into the wilderness, they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God, Exodus nineteen three, The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus shall you say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now pause there a moment and think about this, that one of the characteristics of God's covenant-keeping power is to bring us to himself. The clear implication of that is that no matter how desperate I am, no matter how wilderness-oriented I've become, Uh, I can't bring myself to the Father, that he initiates covenant to bring us to him. Now, later we'll see how vitally that ties in to the individual response of the heart, which is an indispensable part of the entire picture, but it is vital to see that initiative in covenant that, like an eagle bearing up those uh, little ones, like the eagle carrying her young, that I brought you to myself. I bore you on eagle's wings, and would you say those last four words with me aloud, brought you to myself. Jesus echoes a truth of this in John fifteen sixteen when he says, you didn't choose me, but I chose you and ordained you to go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain. Jesus is fulfilling in that wonderful allegory of the vine and the branches, the truth, of the covenant-cutting nature of Almighty God. And as we look at Exodus 19, we begin then to see that there are aspects of this covenant-keeping nature of God that parallel through Scripture with how the individual soul comes into an awakening of the realization that I'm far, far more removed and remote from the character of God than I thought I was. I'm much more in wilderness territory than I ever thought I was. Two experiences Becky and I have had in recent years popped to mind as I was reflecting on it. One is in mountains and the other is in the desert. And one is there are favorite trails of ours in the Smoky Mountains on the border of Tennessee, North Carolina, that uh, I could go to tomorrow and take you to, and we could go deep into that forest, and and I would have no doubt that I could get you back out again. But the last time we were on one of those really long trails, one of the ones we love down there, uh, I got to thinking as Becky and I were walking along beside that beautiful stream, and it, it occurred to me, what would it be like if you were at this place, I know exactly where my car is, I know exactly where the trails get us back, but and, and, and all of that. But what if I was in this place and look at the surroundings and, and you didn't know? Maybe it was dark at night and you didn't know where you were and didn't know how to get back out. That could be a fearful thing. And it kind of dawned on me that we don't think about that much anymore because we're so oriented to certain spaces, but that there is a lostness that the Bible describes in such gripping and compelling terms that we will never grasp. The glory of grace if we miss how profoundly lost we really are. The other thing that Becky and I experienced that also came to mind was thinking of these Israelites here. And I'd like to to share this one, ask you to turn to Deuteronomy chapter 1 for a moment and uh, look at this little piece of this too, and we'll come back to Exodus 19. But in Deuteronomy chapter 1 verse 29, uh, it's really striking to me that when God is, when Moses, at the end of their forty years of wandering, and in Moses' last days, as he's recounting Deuteronomy, means second law, the repeating of the of the law. Now, in Moses' great uh, uh, magisterial summation of all that they experienced, in, in Deuteronomy one twenty nine, he says that um, that the Lord God had um, promised them his presence there. So in verse 29, he says, I said to you, do not be in dread or afraid of them. The Lord your God who goes before you will himself fight for you just as he did for you in Egypt before your eyes and in the wilderness where you've seen how the Lord your God carried you as a man carries his son. Now he he adds, it was an eagle carrying her young and now he personalizes into the most intimate caring and protectiveness that we can imagine in human life, and that is a father's love for his son or his daughter carrying them uh, in in his arms. This is one of those signals that sets apart the revealing of the nature of, of Almighty God from all of the idols of the nations around them. Here is the infinitely personal God, the Creator God. The one who formed man out of the dust of the earth and breathed into his nostrils and man became a living being. This God is signaling that his care for his people in the covenant is as profoundly permanent as a father gathering his little boy or his little girl up and carrying them in his arms. And then in that same text in verse 21 It says, in the wilderness where you've seen how the Lord your God carries you, all the way that you went until you came to this place. So here in this text, and we go back to Exodus 19, God gives to, through Moses, this very vivid picture of the covenant that he has cut with the people of God is now being initiated in a way that there's provision for every single lost soul. And yet, the challenge is, so many can't even begin to fathom their lostness. And that's why I thought of this other trip Becky and I took in, in uh, 2013, I think it was. And it was actually at the, partly, I have to say, at the grace and generosity of our wonderful friends Sylvia and Joe Gorman, because Sylvia said, uh, we've got a timeshare we're not going to be able to use in Sedona, Arizona. Would you like, you and Becky like to use it? And uh, what a sweet gift it was and what a joy that was for us. And we, so in, out of Sedona, as we're heading down from the north rim of the Grand Canyon, we go through, we drive in the rental car through this vast desert. And I, it was vivid in my mind as I was thinking of the one text where God said through Moses, it's a howling wilderness in this very vast desert region relatively easy for us to drive a rental car through <laughs> but you can't help thinking about the the vastness the the sheer um barrenness and bleakness of what it would be if i was out in that desert alone lost or even with companions in a large group but but desolate in a desert it's hard to feel it until you've been there and and here is one of the reasons why i believe god uses this in the manner that he does now think of this distinctive purposes for the wilderness one at the burning bush that when moses first encounters god at the burning bush that moses is encountering Covenant-keeping, covenant-making Creator, when He calls him aside after Moses has been sidelined now in His life for forty years, He is now pressing eighty years old, and Moses has seen a lot. He he's he's he could have made that that uh, insurance com- commercial that says. Um, we 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 know a lot of things because we've seen a lot of things. You know, he he knew a lot. He'd experienced that, and here he is walking in the desert, and there is a bush on fire. Uh, spontaneous combustion of a bush in the do- desert is not an it, is not a completely uncommon thing, but this bush burns and keeps burning, and won't stop burning. It is almost like the internal combustion. Of the bush is reproducing fire, and it it continues to blaze. And Moses says in Exodus three, "Let me go and see what this thing is that uh, God is making known to me." And he steps over closer, and as he approaches the burning bush, he hears the voice of Almighty God calling him closer. And then he says, "Take your sandals off your feet." For the place upon which you're standing is holy ground. And it's in that encounter in Exodus 3 that Moses, for the first time, comes into an awareness of the creator God he's always believed in, but now the creator God is moving toward Moses, the chosen leader who will bring covenant purpose to his people, and he's revealing his name. In that encounter, Moses... Is being given a task far greater than anything he could ever fathom that he could even do. Even starting with speaking to people in a manner that he would have confidence, much less leading them. And in that exchange, in that awesome encounter with Almighty God, God then reveals that awesome covenant keeping name, I am that I am. Well, later in Exodus 4. After the instructions are crystal clear for Moses, and and he he is now in a new phase of awareness of the magnitude of the living God who now has shown him personal purpose and is communicating to Moses directly. Moses is moving toward his destiny when God taps his brother Aaron on the shoulder in Exodus 4.27 and says, Aaron, go out into the wilderness and find Moses. Now, there's no explanation of even how he found him in the desert. To me, it's, that's part of the, the astounding thing about being lost somewhere is, uh, is, is the, the, the notion of, of trying to find him. And yet, here he comes into a wilderness territory, God bringing the primary leader of his people, and then the father of all the priesthood, the future priesthood, which would be a type of the coming Messiah, Aaron. And he says, I want to deal with you guys in the wilderness. (laughs) I want you in the wilderness. And then the departure from Egypt before the crossing of the Red Sea holds another treasure of how God used this. And in this case, In Deuteronomy, in in Exodus 13, 18, God had set up a way so that the children of Israel would be pursued by Pharaoh. But the Bible tells us that Pharaoh miscalculated and Pharaoh thought for sure that he would be able to overtake them and destroy them even after the death of the firstborn had devastated Egypt. In his hot pursuit of the Israelites, his gamble was that they'll get out there in the wilderness and they won't know what to do. But now go to Deuteronomy 32. And we see in Deuteronomy 32 that this covenant-keeping purpose of God that propelled the action all the way to the very threshold at the Red Sea that looked like certain catastrophe for the Israelites, it is at that moment the covenant-keeping God chose to show his outstretched arm, as the prophets often said, and his mighty hand of putting a rod, putting a staff in the hand of Moses and saying, lift that staff over the Red Sea, and Almighty God parts the waters of the Red Sea. And the people of God, the people under covenant power, from Almighty God, cross the Red Sea as if it's on dry land. Deuteronomy chapter 32 verse 9 gives us this composite picture now that the Lord's portion is his people. Now please underscore that and remember that the reason that God's grace that we see in the New Testament has such a comprehensive, powerful, active, redemptive power in our lives is that God has made it so that his highest priority is to have a people, a people redeemed out of their destruction. And verse 10 of Deuteronomy 32 says, He found him in a desert land and in the howling waste of the wilderness. Look how it describes God's intentionality about delivering us. He encircled him. He encircled him. He cared for him. In the imagery of this text, there is a description of how a person is found and how a person is drawn, and how God brings us to this place of understanding that is showing us one of the most vulnerable parts of the human body, the eyeball. And God revealing through the covenant purpose that he found him in a desert land, he encircled him, he instructed him, He kept him as the apple of his eye. I remember being afraid, literally just feeling very nervous when I was driving Justin in college to eye surgeon for a procedure he had to be done. And it was bothering me terribly. I can remember now thinking, I don't like this at all. Even though I knew the guy was a pro and I knew Justin was in good hands. But uh, it was uncomfortable for me as a father to think of somebody working on Justin's eyes. Well, God is saying that the human eye, as vulnerable as it is, is a vivid picture of how great his covenant love for you is. For when God's covenant touches a person's life, when God's covenant purpose embraced Moses to lead his people out of Israel, he said, you and your people are as precious to me as the apple of my eye. Now, go back to Exodus 19 here to see how this ties together then with ultimately the New Testament picture of experiencing the redeeming grace of God. In Exodus chapter 19, verse 5, there is an astounding fact. That foreshadows exactly what God gave to Simon Peter in 1 Peter 2.9 in describing what it means to be among a people who have been redeemed by the grace of God and remember from the text here that it includes the body, the people corporately as well as the individuals. So in Exodus 19.5, Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my word, my voice, and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. We might put it this way, putting together Deuteronomy 32 and Exodus 19, why is it that the Lord described his encircling them, his caring for them, his treating them as the apple of his eye. It was a type, it was a foreshadowing of that which could only be fully grasped in the living, vivid person of Jesus Christ, who could say, when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The gospel writer John draws upon this very truth in John chapter 1, Verses 16 through 18 when he says that from the fullness of his grace we have all received in Christ grace upon grace upon grace. There is a superabounding, overflowing principle of God releasing what can never be fully described in human words. And the reason given in John 1.18 is simply this. Because the law came through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now what is striking for us is Christians often make the mistake of thinking, well, because the law came through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ, then we don't need anything, we really don't even need to know anything about that Old Testament anymore. There's a kind of a dismissiveness in Christian culture today to relegate Genesis through Malachi as somewhat irrelevant to anything in the Christian life. Because sloppily and recklessly and carelessly, people have kind of thrown Genesis through Malachi in an old drawer or a chest and said, yeah, that's that old. Stuff and it is a severe error because here in Exodus 19, God gives us the prophetic eternal intention, (laughs) and that is what that is to have a people who Exodus 19 6 says will be treasured in all the earth, there'll be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And these are the words you shall speak to the children of Israel. Think of it this way. They will be a kingdom of priests. Would you read that aloud with me together? And you shall be to me a kingdom. I clicked it too fast. Sorry about that. (laughs) Oh, my. There we are. Read it aloud with me. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now, if we can see the solidarity, the the singularity of God's purpose from Sinai, the covenant that he gave to manifest his magnificent holiness, and then see the covenant on Golgotha's hill that brings us to Good Friday night when we will be having a communion celebration here to invite everyone to come to the Lord's table, but with, I pray, more awareness, thoughtfulness, preparation of heart than is sometimes typical about the sharing of the Lord's Supper. That we would come on that Good Friday night on April 15th and gather at the table of the Lord with, resounding facts in our ears and in our souls that Almighty God in covenant-cutting and covenant-keeping love has set forth a way that any individual on the planet may come to know that wondrous reality of the grace of God coming to us. Now, this is why in the text... It is anticipated here that in Exodus 19, that the Lord will come down upon Mount Sinai, that the Lord will be coming to them. these imageries from Sinai reveal for the purpose of manifesting the holiness of God, what opens our eyes to the magnitude. Of redeeming grace in the sacrifice lamb. For this is the God who none of us can ascend to. This is the God none of us can negotiate with. This is the God none of us have any claim on. In the wilderness and desolate deserts of our lostness. But he foreshadows Calvary first in the magnitude of coming down upon Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people, he tells Moses in Exodus 19. Now, the purpose of that clearly is multifaceted. But one of the enduring themes throughout the Old Testament is that it brings to our focus the Shekinah, the actual word for God's dwelling among men, dwelling among humanity. And he he signals it as early as Exodus chapter 25 when he gives them that, that temporary dwelling place to construct where they will travel in the wilderness. Yes, wilderness, staying in the wilderness. And yet with God's tabernacle, portable, movable, sanctuary space in which every single piece of the furniture as well as the fabrics and the structure bring types and foreshadowings of the person and work of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And why? Why? Why such an elaborate preparation of a people in the desert? He tells us, in Exodus 25, 8, when he says, make them a tabernacle that I may dwell among them. He tells us back here in Exodus nineteen, six, when he says, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And it is in that Shekinah, the dwelling place, temporary that he prepares, that he shows what the word glory implies throughout the Old Testament, kabad meaning the weight of the radiance of Almighty God. You know, in a very practical way, I can tell you what this church needs. Somebody may say, you start diagnosing the needs of a church, and you could, boy, we could make a list, you know, 99 things here, couldn't we? Easily, quickly. But you know what this congregation needs more than anything that could be on our lists, And it would be true of any congregation you love, any congregation you're a part of today. Wherever you may be from, we need the glory of our king. We need what Psalm 24 tells us to do when we're made aware that he's promised to do this. And we can join our voices with Psalm 24 7 and say, lift up your gates. Lift up your gates and open the gates. Open the everlasting doors, and the king of glory will come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. People who sever all the Old Testament and drop it in some bin as irrelevant miss the magnitude of what Jesus embodies when he gives us this fulfilled picture Of the sacrifice lamb. You see, all that I just said as we close is wrapped up in a great Hebrew thought that we saw in Psalm 107 as we read earlier in the service, and is literally woven like a tapestry through all the narratives of the Old Testament, and that is God's chesed, the chesed of God, C H E S E D. Hesed, translated in many modern translations as mercy, and others, often the King James Bible, would use the synonyms of both mercy and loving kindness. Psalm 63:4, thy loving kindness is better than life. Thy Hesed, would you say Hesed with me? I, the guttural is hard, but just say Hesed. The, say Hesed, thy Hesed, thy loving kindness. What is it? Chesed is the covenant keeping mercy of God, where He has chosen through the covenant cut initially with Abraham. The covenant that was cut when the blood of the sacrificed lamb is sprinkled on the doorpost of every home in the Passover. The blood of the covenant that foreshadows the blood in those days that had to be repeated year after year after year, where the New Testament comes and tells us Jesus only needed shed his blood once for once for all the lamb of god has taken away the sin of the world but why 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 so we can say oh yeah of course god's a grace god of course ah oh, god's just gracy <laughs> his grace is everything mm, wait a minute when I hear grace, I hear something. I hear the rumblings of the thunder at Sinai. I hear the, I hear the, the screech of children seeing a lamb that they become attached to have its throat slit. As the father of the family must carry out the sacred responsibility for the lamb's blood to be put in a basin sprinkled on the doorpost of the home, that they may be delivered. When I hear grace, I want to hear the awe of a Moses falling on his face, saying, who will I say sent me? And the booming, powerful reality that the eternal creator is speaking to Moses, his chosen vessel, and saying, Moses, tell them I am. Who I am. When I hear grace, I want to hear. I want to hear and rejoice in what the psalmist said should cause us to say, "Let Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. I'm redeemed. I'm redeemed. Praise the Lord. Could you pray with me? Lord, I ask that today we might revisit in our hearts the sure mercies of David, the mighty power of your covenant-keeping purpose that, that literally resonates throughout Genesis to Malachi as it leads us to that place where you sent your servant John as a voice crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord.